So, I'm writing a novel. It's the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this unique one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also answer listener questions and, sometimes, interview people who write fiction. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. Last time, I discussed my protagonist for Untitled Sword and Sorcery novel, still untitled, Vo was her name, still is. And the time before that was me introducing this podcast, of course, and myself, etc., etc., but also talking a lot about genre. Today I'm going to be getting into what feels like a logical fusion of character and genre, which is stories. What kind of sword and sorcery genre stories do I want to put my character through? Because this is a short story cycle novel, it is a collection of individual stories that add up to a greater whole, telling you about this one character's life through a period of it, or, you know, the entirety, depending on how I feel. And yeah, so okay, what, what ones am I going to choose? So I'm going to crack open the denim notebook here, turning to an early page dated for January 31st, 2020, when I sat down and sort of said to myself, okay, so we've got the Vaux short story named after her that was like the origin story of this whole thing, uh, both the project of the novel and the story within the novel itself. And I've assigned her a kind of an overarching quest of hunt and kill the wizard that trapped her and her people on that far northern island that she escapes by the end of the initial story. Then what? And I just did like a bullet point of, you know, off the dome of stuff that excited me because, it, you know, you got to be excited. And I think it's a good place to start from just whatever animates you, right? Before I get into that list, this feels like a good place to mention that when I was a teenager and I was getting a little more serious about writing prose, I often actually didn't write things because I was so afraid of cliché. I was so terrified of doing something that, oh, well, that's been done a whole bunch before. And the fact that that kept me from doing anything, of course, was a little, well, by the definition uh, of the word, counterproductive. <laughs> and it got pretty silly, you know, like, oh, I can't write a story where two friends become enemies or the call is coming from inside the house or, you know, whatever, right? Because then the reader will recognize that and that will be bad and they won't like me and ah, you know, so yeah, obviously I had to grow out of that. However, I think it's a fear that you never entirely lose, you know, you don't want to be unoriginal. You don't want the reader to go, I've seen this and just like chuck the book into the fireplace that they obviously have. You want to bring something new and this can be in conflict with your competing desire to play with stuff that you would like to play with tropes forms settings genres you know which was the origin of my wanting to write this book it was me reading a bunch of sword and sorcery stuff and going golly i want to do one of these things i want to play with these action figures as time passed and i teenage oliver realized like no no no, i, I want to write and i want it to not feel so hard or even make me you know this fear make me stop i realized like well yeah, okay, I can say to myself, I want to play with this thing, I want to do a haunted house story or whatever. It just can't be where my thinking stops because, you know, we've all watched movies or read stories, whatever, that leave you at the end feeling kind of like, well, that sure was of the genre. That person who wrote this sure did work through a checklist. I didn't hate it. I don't dislike it. Uh, that happened. Acknowledging the absurdity of trying to completely and utterly reinvent all aspects of storytelling, as well as remembering that I myself did not walk around throwing books into fireplaces every time I encountered anything familiar helped free me to just enjoy 
the part of the process where I just brainstorm, you know, what are the action figures that I want to play with? What are the settings that I think are cool when I have them run around and yada yada? You know, so yeah. All right, which brings us back to the Denim Notebook, January 31st, 2020, and me off the dome just brainstorming what are some fun things I want to put my character Vo through. You know, some of them were just me kind of saying, I want to do not X, which uh, what I mean is, for example, on my list, I've got thief hijinks in not Lankmar. <laughs> what does that sentence mean? Well, thief hijinks, of course, yeah, I want to do like a roguish kind of story, you know, have a bit of comedy along with the action and, you know, have Vo be in a situation where she's trying to steal something, perhaps. Not Lankmar is my way of writing down that I would like to design something, which is more or less my take on the classic sword and sorcery City of Thieves, Lankmar being the most well-known one. It is the city in... I've mentioned these guys a few times before, and I'll mention them a lot more in the future, I think. Bafford and Grey Mouser stories written by Fritz Leiber. I'm really looking forward to seeing what I can bring of myself into designing my own City of Thieves kind of situation. And I will be discussing that here, of course. But right now, the list. Okay, with Thief Hijinks and Not Lankmar, basically a vibe and a setting that I kind of want to play with. Of course, there are items on this list which are literally just me saying, I want to do something like that story I liked. For example, I have on here, write our own The People of the Black Circle. The People of the Black Circle being a classic novella-length Conan story by Robert Howard that I absolutely love. For me, it is the quintessential get-your-heart-pounding, got every element, you know, of sword and sorcery that I can think of, you know, present kind of story. I've read it and reread it many times, and I will talk about it more in the future. I also have our own lean times in Lankmar comedy. So yeah, I want to do that pulse pounding sword and sorcery, you know, people, the black circle. I also want to do something like a story that made me laugh out loud. And from the title, you can rightly infer that is a Fafford and Grey Mouser story. Some of the items on my list are just settings like mysterious ruined city in the middle of nowhere which is a classic sword and sorcery dealie you know here i make notes about how i was thinking of the slithering shadow or the red nails both conan stories when i wrote that down of course you don't want to be afraid to go outside of the genre or even fiction itself another item i have on here is an underland story which is my short for thinking of the robert mcfarlane non-fiction book, Underland, all about curious and mysterious places deep, 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 deep underground. And I would love to write a story in a setting like that. I don't know why. I'm often drawn to the thought of a character having to go down, 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 down into a cave system or a weird subway or something. Speaking of both weird and going outside your genre, I also have something here that is kind of mashing the genre you've chosen onto something else. My sentence here reads precisely, fantasy zone, quote unquote, story. And then I wrote a little arrow coming off it saying synesthesia? Question mark? <laughs> what I would call a zone story is something where a character or characters go into a place that is very uncanny. It was once something normal, but it has been changed, is probably still changing, in ways that mess up nature. The classic for this is Stalker, the Tarkovsky film, which was an adaptation of the novel Roadside Picnic. More recently, you would have had the film Annihilation, an adaptation of the first book in the Southern Reach trilogy. Well, I was thinking about those kinds of stories and those stories I just mentioned in particular, and then wondering what it might be like to pattern sword and sorcery over such a story. And then thinking about fantasy and myth in general, and well, you often get those stories about the fae realm going into the woods and then all of a sudden you're kind of in a different woods and isn't that kind of a zone story so yeah i think there's some meat on those bones and i want to play with it 
on to the list it goes. Some of the items on my list are very vague. One of them just reads, something romantic, comma, or at least lusty. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. I want to write a story where there's some romance or somebody gets horny. And if somebody gets horny, there's probably going to be comedy because I just think that horny plus laughter equals a good time. <laughs> This also brings us to picking stories based on your character and what you want to do with them, because at this point already, I like Vo, and I want to see what happens with her if she gets in a romantic situation or in some kind of sex comedy farce. I don't know, maybe a mixture of the two. <laughs> so that gets on the list. Something else I'd love to see Vo do is get embroiled in like a duel of wits with like a trickster figure of some kind, whether it's just a person or a god like good old Loki that we've been seeing in the Marvel movies. This appeals to me because of the work I've already done to get to know who Vo is and how she behaves. And certainly when she's younger and a little more naive, you know, she's smart, she's clever, but she's not formally educated. And she can, might surprise you with a play on words, but she could also be easily overwhelmed by someone like a Loki, let's say Loki just for fun. Let's imagine Loki sits down and starts fooling with her. He could take advantage of the fact that he's better with words overall and knows more big fancy words and has more knowledge of the world at large to overwhelm her. So that could be kind of a neat, you know, duel of minds, I think. And oh my god, I just realized there's a bit of my dad in Vo. What I mean is, okay, well, my dad, he's a goldsmith. I think I mentioned that my parents are goldsmiths before. He's a goldsmith and he finished what most of us would think of as standard formal education at 14. You know, he left high school in Britain to then do art college for a couple of years and an apprenticeship as a goldsmith, hands-on. And, you know, he's gone on to live, a, I think, a pretty happy life and a good one. And he's a bright guy, and I would never tell anybody he's anything but a bright guy. But when I was a dumb teenager who was a little too quick with his words and lived in that realm, I could, when arguing with my dad, sometimes kind of piss him off, fair enough. And by being a little prick, I would overwhelm him sometimes with just my $10 words and my quick talking. And dad, you know, is across from me, a very bright person, knows far more about the world than me, but his smarts are located more in his hands, you know, as a craft person. And so, you know, I we just sort of fall back on, well, I'm your dad, shut up. And I'd be like, I'm bigger than you. Puberty has had an effect. And uh, <laughs> and there you go. There's a moment that would be fun if I do the trickster versus vote kind of story where the duel of wits breaks down. <laughs> And I wouldn't have made that fun discovery if years ago, teenage Oliver hadn't taken a break from being a dick to his dad to get over, to work through his fear of cliches, fear of just picking a story type that people will recognize and then throw the book in the fire. Yeah. Okay. So I did this list and then I thought to myself, good question, I think, to ask yourself over and over again while writing, how can I take this further? How can I discover more things I don't know or remind myself of great stuff that I have kind of forgotten? As is often the case, I was working in my denim notebook while stretched out on the couch, which points me directly at my main bookshelf. Running my eyes across the various sections, I spotted something I hadn't thought too hard about in a long time. The Penguin Dictionary of Literary Terms and Literary Theory. 996 pages in alphabetical order from Abbey Theatre to Writers Guild of Great Britain, which makes it sound like it's just kind of about places and organizations in England. However, I assure you it covers everything else you can imagine in between. Cultural movements like the Harlem Renaissance or, you know, uh, naturalism. Uh, what else we got here? 
primitivism, the regional novel, what a refrain is. Yeah, there's a lot in here about poetry and bits and pieces of poetry. Socratic irony. It pages on just what children's books are. It even defines very seemingly simple things like comedy or what a horror story is. And you know what? Like a lunatic, I gradually worked through every page of this book making a short list of things that sounded interesting to me, writing out partial or full definitions of the ones that really set off a light bulb in my head, and overall enjoying one of the really great pleasures that comes with writing outside of the context of school. I don't think I'm blowing your mind when I remind you that it's no secret the way English literature and reading in general can be taught to people. You know, some people, yeah, it ignites a lifetime of reading and writing and loving them. But I would say just as many, if not far more people, get really put off of it in general or specific aspects of it because of the pressures of being graded and how that ties into self-worth or feelings of what kind of future you're going to be allowed to have, as well as the fact that you're being told to read these things. You're not necessarily choosing to read these things. But ah, then we have the pleasure of recontextualizing these things, these things, books, reading, grammar, whatever, all that crap uh, that falls under the umbrella of English language education. And so my literary terms and literary theory dictionary, which does not sound like exciting reading and was something that I just got as a pack of a bunch of books I was told to get in my first year of my bachelor's of English uh, you know, education, was just a dry tome that I would go to when I got a little lost while trying to write an essay to make that deadline. Line, ah, and now it's something kind of cool that I can look at on my own terms as part of a project that I'm very excited to do. And it's now a toolbox, right? It's a toolbox. It's filled with tools or toys or spices, whatever metaphor makes you happy. It's filled with little neat things I can pick and choose, use to my own delight, not worry about being graded on or whatever <laughs> in this thing that I'm really wanting to do, this novel. So I'm flicking through this with my genre, Sword and Sorcery, and my character, Vo, in mind, and getting all kinds of fun ideas, like what if, uh, oh, let's go to letter E here. What if it's uh, an epistolary short story? You know, we have two people living far apart who take turns informing the other of whatever mayhem Vo has wreaked in their respective regions. That could be kind of cool. Maybe even end it with Vo replying to the first person on the other person's stationery because they just killed them and now she's coming for them. I don't know. That sounds cool. Or we flit over to the letter H, heteronym, you know, di using different names to represent different alter egos or facets of one person's many-sided personality. You know, for some, they have a real existence. You know, they're not just pseudonyms. Well, okay, that gets me thinking about how in the short story that birthed this whole project, Vo fibs about her name for the first half of the story. She's like, ah, oh, yeah, I'm a traveler from far away called Starla. Yeah, that sounds right. And so, okay, what if that was Vo's first crack at a heteronym, which is technically a creative alter ego, kind of like how when Stephen King goes by a different name because he wants to write some crime pulps and he wants a break from horror because it's the 1980s and he's doing a lot of coke. What if in most or even all of the stories, Vo went by one of a few regular heteronyms? Maybe a different one each time. Maybe when she finally confronts the wizard, that's the only time she actually goes by Vo. You know, I have ultimately decided not to go with that, but boy, did it get my imagination cooking. And it was worth revisiting terms that I just felt like, yeah, I know what that is. I don't need to think too hard about it. For example, legend. In the book, it said, Originally, legends were stories of lives of saints, which in monastic life might be read in church or in the refectory, 
which is like the mess hall, and therefore belonged to hagiography. The term came to be applied to a collection of such stories. Well, there you go. Legend. I just, I don't know, man. You don't think too hard about that. You're like, oh, it's a legend is a story about someone who was really badass and some crazy stuff happened. And we still talk about it all these years later. And also some of it's possibly untrue. For my purposes, it suggests an interesting framing device, like maybe this collection of short stories tracking the life of Vo or a period of her life is actually the legends of Vo. And so there's a bit of an unreliable narrator thing happening here, and it's being told to us by monks long after she died. Maybe she became a saint in some major religion I haven't invented yet. I don't know. But there you go, right? I re-examine the word legend and I'm getting these ideas. Before I move on to the last thing I'm going to talk about today, I just want to take a little aside to mention that it's never too late to recontextualize things, even as dry as like the rules of grammar, so that you can take pleasure out of them because you're doing it because you want to, because you're doing it outside of a testing environment. Uh, yeah, my dad is in his 70s. And as I mentioned, he ceased what most of us consider formal education. You know, his last English class was when he was 14. And he, of a sudden, wanted to write a book. He wanted to write about the period of his life from basically when he was 14 and he went into art school and then his apprenticeship. Uh, and then the whole you know goldsmithing trade through to when he decided to move to Canada years later. And it, this meant a lot to him. It was something he was very pumped to do, but it was very intimidating because of how long it had been since he'd been in those classes all those years ago. And he hadn't really done any creative writing since. But like I say, he's a bright guy. It's just, that, you know, his education went in a different direction. And let me tell you, one of the greatest joys of my life was sitting down with him more than once. You know, it took a minute, but sitting down with him and really getting across to him when I tried to get across hear about the whole recontextualizing thing, rediscovering, repurposing thing with all those bits and pieces of our English education that can be off-putting or that maybe we missed out on even and then feel too intimidated to go back to later in life. Doing that not only helped me see all that stuff more clearly because one of the best ways to remind yourself of things is to teach them to others. It allowed me to connect with my father in a way that I don't really know we had before and it also allowed me to repay him for being patient with shitty teenage Oliver and many other eras of Oliver who were sometimes unpalatable and for investing in me by helping me get my education and all that good stuff. So yeah, the benefits of writing can be well beyond what we would assume. And I would always encourage people to give it a whirl, even just the once, you know, after you're done with schooling. Don't let your schooling experiences, if they did put you off, put you off for life. Okay, you know what? Actually, I've changed my mind and I'm going to leave the fact that I've changed my mind in here since a big part of this project, this podcast, is being transparent about process. Uh, I am actually going to talk about something that I was going to try and cram in here next time. What is that something? Well, it's me doing a compare and contrast. Yeah, you talk about repurposing old school stuff, huh? A compare and contrast between one of the stories I mentioned earlier, The People of the Black Circle by Robert E. Howard, and what I consider a grossly inferior, but also weirdly kind of a photocopy of that story, Conan the Buccaneer by Lynn 
Carter. Yeah, Lynn Carter comes up again, and I'm going to avoid that guy. I'm going to get into what my doing a compare and contrast of those two stories did for me in figuring out my novel and having a better understanding of its genre. And then from there, I'll probably go into how I took all this stuff, you know, the compare and contrast and everything I've talked about today with the various off the dome story types and then the various things I pulled out of that toolbox, that penguin book I mentioned. I'll talk about how I came up with a guide, a kind of structure, a lighthouse for me to you know, follow so I don't get lost among the jumble of all these fun things I've picked up and ideas that I've had. Okay, time for a listener question. This one comes from Tanya Morrison in Alberta. Hi, Oliver. My question for you is, why do you think you're drawn to Rosie the Riveter as sort of the archetype for your your female characters and and why do you think you keep returning to this this similar strong female protagonist in multiple stories is it common for authors to continuously sort of write around a similar character until they feel like they've really got to know the character Thank you, Tanya. Okay, so to your kind of three-part question here, the first bit with Rosie the Riveter, I was really drawn to her as kind of a character type, I guess, that I wanted to play with because of what was suggested to me by the painting. You know, I look at someone who's not looking at me, she's having her sandwich, I'm not important, <laughs> she doesn't need my approval, shows this kind of, you know, self-assuredness that I like. She's obviously working class, which I relate to because of my family background, and I like that she has both a combination of physical strength that you can see in just her size and shape, but also uh, the suggestion of how that is used in a skilled fashion because of the riveter across her lap. Your main character doesn't have to be literally someone you want to hang out with, but you as a writer have to like spending time with them, even if they're like a filthy, horrible serial killer or whatever, because, you know, I say in that case, it's not that you actually want to have them come over to your house and chill out with you, but you find them intriguing, and so you like spending time with them because you want to see what they're going to do next. To the second part of your question, you know, why do I think I keep returning to like sort of variations on this uh, Rosie the Riveter, my take on Rosie, you know, as a strong female protagonist in multiple stories, whether the horror movie I mentioned, John Carrad Leopard, or here with Vo? Well, partly it's because I enjoy spending time with her. Partly it's because I feel like I don't see a heck of a lot of protagonists like her and I want to, so I'm going to create that, right? And partly because I still feel like there are stories for me to tell with my take on Rosie or my variations on Rosie. If I felt like, okay, I've said what I got to say with that person, then I would move on, of course. But I still feel like there's more I want to say with her and like I, I'm still refining her. You know, as Vogue's coming together, I feel like she's more in tune with me as I am now than Rosalind, my horror movie character that I came up with like, geez, nine years ago now, I guess it must be, eight or nine years ago, when I was a bit of a different person and had very different concerns, also just had a different skill level of my writing and felt differently about it. To the last part of your question, you know, is it common for authors to continuously write around like a similar character until they feel like they've really gotten to know them? Well, I've definitely seen it happen more than once, you know, come back to another author I've mentioned before who I feel familiar with, having read all of his works multiple times, William Gibson. He, especially in his last like three or four books, I guess, has gotten in the habit of writing what he would call, I think I saw him say on Twitter, something like, you know, I think people still really like my highly capable, you know, seemingly indestructible lady protagonists. And I, unfortunately, I can't find the tweet to quote that more precisely. But essentially, he, he himself has publicly acknowledged, yeah, people seem to dig what I'm doing. 
and I'm still enjoying it, so I'm going to keep coming back to my own variations on this character. Without an author directly addressing the thing, like you know, William Goosen did on Twitter, it can be hard to say just by consuming an author's works, but like, because, you know, maybe it's not so much that they keep returning to the same kind of character as what you're hearing is their voice over and over again coming through a variety of characters, and that can make them seem similar. Is that bad writing? Well, that's subjective. I'll leave that up to you. Okay, I hope that answered your question, and thank you for sending it in. So, I'm writing a novel? Features original music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. Bonus points if you record yourself and send me an MP3, I can cut into the show. Doesn't have to be fancy, using your phone is fine, just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so I'm writing a novel. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it leaving a review on iTunes, and checking out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to be thanked in the final novel, listen to episodes of the podcast a week early, and even enjoy a bonus podcast called So I Wrote a Novel, where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first novel, Junkyard Leopard. Thanks for hanging out with me, and I'll see you soon.